there's no avoiding it. I guess we're back in James. You can turn to the book of Acts. We may or may not get to the book of James this morning. Let me tell you what the game plan is for this morning. Two weeks ago, I probably should have presented the material that I'm going to be presenting to you this morning. But last Sunday after I introduced the idea that there was tension between what James wrote and what Paul wrote, people had questions, both here in the room and on the Internet. And Jeff said to me, you know, we probably ought to go back and talk in more detail about some of the things that you're just kind of assuming that people know. I just assume that folks know the tensions that existed in the first century church. But I really think we need to go back and spell it out because as you see the demonstration throughout the New Testament of the tension that did exist between James and Paul and their relative groups, both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, once you see that tension and understand it, then what James says and what Paul says are not as foreign as all that. You're already used to the idea of the tension by the time you see James's letter. And you say, well, of course he would write that. Clearly, that is the history of the early church. Now, the Bible, and this is one of the things that I really, really like about the Bible, the Bible does not shy away from the uncomfortable stuff. I mean, as soon as it talks about David and Bathsheba or Ham and Noah or Judah and his daughter-in-law, You know, there's just really uncomfortable stuff. But last week, Luann asked, quite rightly, as we were talking about the differences between what James wrote and what Paul wrote, she asked, but it's all the word of God, right? It's all God-breathed. It's all Holy Spirit-inspired, correct? And I said, yes, it is. That's the important thing, is that the Holy Spirit hasn't shied away from giving us the full account of the first century church, even the uncomfortable stuff. And I get that the conflict between the theology of James and Paul is naturally uncomfortable because we would like our religion to be in small bite-sized chunks that we can easily digest 
and that we can go there. It's, it's the Word of God, and it's all simple, and Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and we're all done. But to me, from a theological standpoint, that's like speaking to an astronomer and saying, all astronomy can be sized up by simply saying, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. The Bible doesn't just say, Jesus loves me, this I know. The whole Bible is not John 3.16. The Bible is full of complex things and historical things that we have to understand in their historical context. Now, as I've said the last couple of weeks, I've spent my whole life listening to pastors deal with James in little bite-sized chunks, in little pieces. They take stuff out of context, the stuff that they can deal with, like resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Pastors like that phrase, so they'll yank that out of James. Or if they're particularly legalistic, they will take some of the commands, some of the imperatives out of James. But it's very difficult to just stand toe-to-toe with the book of James and just let it say what it says. And that's the approach that I've been trying to take the last several weeks is to just say, this is what James says, and then my hope is that by plugging it in to the historical context in which it was written, we would have some insight into why James wrote the things he did. James didn't have what we call the New Testament. James didn't have the fully developed, fully rounded, fully orbed theology that we have today. He didn't have the Pauline letters to deal with. They were just beginning to be written. Even the uh, books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were, were about to be written, still weren't in circulation within the church. The book of Revelation wasn't going to be written for another 30, 40 years. He didn't have all the stuff that we have so that we can develop what we consider sovereign grace theology, the theology of God's grace given to Gentiles, bringing people into the church. James didn't have that, but what he did have was experiences that were, for lack of a better euphemism, rocking his world. I'm so young and hip. He was seeing things that he had to deal with within his framework, and his framework was 1,400 years of do the law, do stuff. And now the Messiah has come. The first martyr that you see in the book of Acts is Stephen. And Stephen, in his sermon, takes the time to connect Jesus to the entire history of Israel. And so he sees, as all Jews did, they see the coming Messiah as the completion, the culmination of 1,400 years of history with God. And so James sees it from that aspect, and he thinks it is a very Jewish thing. It's a very Israel thing. It's Israel's Jewish Messiah. It's God saving Israel in particular. They're expecting the kingdom now because Messiah has come. They're going to throw off the yoke of Rome. Here comes the promised reestablishment of the kingdom. They even tried to make Jesus king during his three-and-a-half-year ministry. They were going to make him king by force because they expected that everything that God had been saying for 1,400 years plus, everything that the prophets had said were all going to culminate now because Messiah's here. And instead, God decides that he's going to bring Gentiles in 
and that rather than make the Gentiles follow the rule of law and the covenants and the promises that the prophets have preached to Israel, rather than do that, he's going to save them by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus. Thank God. Yeah, and he's not even going to go back to, now you have to keep at least a portion of the law. Maybe not the ceremonial part, but you have to at least keep the religious portions of the law that have to do with maybe civil rules or the moral rules, the way the church commonly tries to divide up the law. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says the law is a covenant made with Israel. It's between Israel and God. There were no Gentiles in it. And so when God decided to bring Gentiles in to covenant with him, to relationship with him, to fill them with his spirit, he didn't take them back to the law. He took them back to Calvary. And so Paul's theology is all about the resurrection of Christ and faith in that resurrection and confidence in the grace of God to save Gentiles. As that was all happening, James is in Jerusalem with Peter and John, and they're hearing stories that God is now bringing Gentiles in, and they have to decide now, okay, how much law do we put on them? And you will notice as we look at some of these stories this morning that James just can't help himself. He has to give them at least a few imperatives. He ends up saying, well, if God hasn't made a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, then who are we to disagree? But let's throw a couple rules at them anyway. Because that's the way James thinks. That's his theology. That's his history. That's his background. That's his religion. That's what he's coming out of. And unless you view the book of James through that 1,400 years of Jewish religion, and now there is this generation of Jews who are dealing with the fact that Gentiles are being introduced to a covenant that is distinctly theirs, and now they got to deal with this new reality? Unless you understand that distinction between Jew and Gentile, you just can't understand the book of James. So this morning, we're just going to look at examples that I think sometimes we just kind of read past, but we haven't really put it into the context of the Jamesian thought process. We're going to do that this morning so that we can understand where James is coming from when he says, you are saved by faith and works. Your works justify you. To us Gentiles who have been taught by Paul, to us, we would disagree with that thought. We would say, no, that's not how we're justified. We're justified by faith with no works at all. But James would say, your works justify you. Okay, so let's look at why he said that. It's not that he's wrong, which somebody has asked me just about every week that we've been on this topic. Somebody has said, well, then is James wrong? Or is Paul more right? Or, and I have said every time, no, neither of them are wrong because they're talking to different audiences. And you have to recognize that. So turn in the book of Acts to chapter 11 and we will start there. This is Peter in Jerusalem reporting to James and the others what has happened when he went to the household of Cornelius. Now understand that in the Jewish mindset, they would never go to a Gentile house. 
They would never eat with a Gentile. And Peter is about to say that he did go to Cornelius' house and that he did eat with him. He did preach to him. The reason that he did it was because God gave him a vision. And the vision God gave him while he was up on the rooftop was that God brought down a bunch of unclean food. Any thoroughgoing Jew like Peter would not eat the unclean foods. Why? Because it's in the law. The law says there are certain animals that are unclean and you can't eat them. And now God presents Peter with some of those unclean animals and says to Peter, rise and eat. Peter three times argues with God and says, no, I don't eat unclean things. Now, he may have just thought it was some kind of test. Who knows? But three times he says, no, I don't eat unclean things. God says to him, Don't call unclean what I have called clean. That's when Peter wises up and realizes, oh, this is a lesson. God's teaching me something. And at that very moment, messengers from the household of Cornelius are at his gate calling for Peter, looking for him, inviting Peter to go and preach the gospel to the household of Cornelius. God has planned all this. But God knows that if Cornelius, a Gentile who loves the Jews who's been good to the Jews and giving alms to the Jews. If Cornelius, a Gentile, just showed up at the household where Peter was of Simon the Tanner, if he just showed up there and said, tell Peter to come to my house, Peter's not going because Peter, even though he's been saved by Jesus, even though he's been redeemed by Jesus, even though he preached what we heard this morning on the day of Pentecost, even though he's Holy Spirit filled, still doesn't commune with Gentiles. This is after the cross. This is after his redemption and Holy Spirit inhabitation. He still doesn't commune with Gentiles. And so in order to bring the gospel to Gentiles, God has to teach Peter that he is now saving Gentiles. And that's where the story begins here. Okay? Chapter 11, starting at verse 1, we're going to read through verse 26. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Okay, so who are the circumcised? The Jews Jews that are at Jerusalem. The Jews that are at Jerusalem, who are believers, took issue with Peter because they found out he went to talk to a Gentile. Remember again, I'm going to emphasize this and I'm going to keep emphasizing it. This is after the resurrection. This is after Pentecost. This is after the coming of the Holy Spirit. But there is still a Jew-Gentile distinction. And the Jews at Jerusalem, who are led by James have issue with Peter because he went to Gentiles. So they were saying to him, verse 3, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. So that's what they're upset about. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by the four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it, 
and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared before the house in which I was staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angels standing in the house and saying, send to Joppa. And have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here, and he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. What's he talking about? He's talking about Pentecost. He's talking about the thing that we heard this morning from Jeff. The Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But all of them who were collected there at Jerusalem for Pentecost were all Jews. They spoke various different languages and heard in various dialects and tongues because they lived among various different Gentile areas where there were different languages. So they each heard in their own language, but they all came to Jerusalem because they were keeping the law. And the law said that three times a year they had to go to Jerusalem. So they were there for Pentecost. And now Peter is saying, I went and spoke to this household full of Gentiles. And lo and behold, the same spirit that fell on us fell on them. Well, this had to be shocking. Because God had always been in covenant, sending promises, sending prophets to Israel, to the Jews. It wasn't about the Gentiles. And now God is introducing Gentiles into the covenant that belongs to Israel? Well, the Jews just couldn't handle that. This is our thing. This is our Savior. This is our covenant. What is God doing by bringing Gentiles in? Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God, therefore, gave to them the same gift that he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen, the first martyr who was stoned, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. See that? They've already heard about God bringing Gentiles in, but they're still resisting the concept. They're still resisting the idea that Gentiles are being brought in. They're going out. They're being scattered. They went into Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, 
speaking the word, the very word of God, the word that brings life and salvation to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, that's the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Why? Why? They, they didn't send Barnabas off to Antioch when they heard that there were people preaching to Jews. That didn't bother them. It wasn't until they heard that Gentiles were being preached to that the ones in Jerusalem said, we've got to find out what's happening here. Send Barnabas off to go see what's happening in Antioch. Verse 23, then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he, Barnabas, was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Why did he go looking for Saul? Because Saul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's in Antioch and Gentiles are getting saved. So he doesn't go back to Jerusalem to Peter, John, and James and say, hey, you guys got to come preach to these Gentiles. No, he goes and looks for the one who is the apostle to the Gentiles. There is still distinction to be had here. Verse 26, when he found Paul, he brought him to Antioch so that the Gentiles then could hear from Paul. And it came about that for an entire year, they, Barnabas and Paul, they met with the church, with the ecclesia, and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians, which means little Christ. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Hmm. All right, so that's as much as I wanted you to see out of that chapter. Do you understand so far that there is a distinction in the early church between those who are in Jerusalem, that's Peter, John, and James, led by the brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote the letter that we're taking under consideration. He's the one who supposedly had knees like camels because he spent so much time on his knees praying. Everybody looked to James in Jerusalem. But meanwhile, there's this whole bubbling under of God saving Gentiles and Barnabas and Paul are dealing with them. That's distinction. That's two different groups. Those are two different people groups who are being saved, may I say, Two different ways at that point. They're being taught two different theologies at that point. Because James is teaching them Jesus is the continuation of everything you already know from the law. Paul is teaching Jesus is the Savior to every Gentile who believes by faith it's a matter of grace. Those are two different messages to two different people groups. And you see it again all the way through the book of Acts as you look at the early church there is this separation between the Jews and the Gentiles turn over to Acts 15 so now of course Paul would get called to Jerusalem because he's preaching to Gentiles and the folks in Jerusalem want to know what this is all about so Paul goes to Jerusalem we're going to start in chapter 15 verse 1 well, we can't start with the word and. 
Start in verse 25 of chapter 14. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to where? Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Chapter 15, and some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so what just happened? Paul and Barnabas are talking to the Gentiles. They don't say anything about circumcision or keeping the law or Moses or any of that. They've come down from Antioch among the Gentiles. And then some men came down from Judea. And what do they say right away to the Gentiles? They say, oh, but you do have to be circumcised. You have to be according to the custom of Moses. And that's what you have to do or you can't be saved. That's the theology of works justify you. You can't be justified and saved without circumcision. This, of course, is the very controversy that carried all the way into Galatia. We're going to get to the book of Galatians in a few minutes. But this is what Paul withstood adamantly. He withstood those who came from James, from Judea, from Jerusalem, who told the Gentiles, you have to be circumcised. And yet, despite using some of his most vicious language on the Jews who would circumcise Gentiles, Despite that, Paul circumcised Timothy. Why? Because Timothy had a Jewish mother that made him Jewish, so it was okay to circumcise him. And yet it wasn't okay to circumcise Titus. Why? Titus was a Gentile. And so even Paul sees the distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. Are you with me so far? Have I lost anyone yet? Okay, good. So some came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, saying, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, why? Because as we see in the book of Galatia, Paul withstands these guys and says, no, you can't put the law on Gentiles. They were never in it. They were never part of that covenant. So you can't impose a piece of the law on them or else you're going to make them guilty of the whole law. So you can't do that to them. So they had a great debate and dissension. Don't miss that. The Bible's being honest with you. The early church, Jewish church in Jerusalem, the early church, Gentile church, led by Paul, had great dissension and debate with each other. So is it any surprise that when we're reading the book of James, we would see something that disagrees with what Paul says? No, absolutely not, because the Bible's being honest with us. The Bible is telling us what went on in the early church that included debate and dissension. Now, we would like to think that once the Holy Spirit came, all those early believers 
all just loved each other and agreed with each other and sang kumbaya and it was all wonderful and campfires and roses and rainbows everywhere. That's not what it was. The early church was all about debate and dissension between Jews and Gentiles because the introduction of Gentiles into the covenant of salvation through the Jewish Messiah was a huge affront to the Jews. They resisted it the same way Peter resisted it. And so it caused a considerable amount of debate and great dissension. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue, concerning this issue which wasn't as easy to say as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Why were Paul and Barnabas told to go to Jerusalem because that's where James was so go to the elders at Jerusalem and debate them dissent with them figure out what you're doing because they're going to have answers for you therefore being sent on their way by the church they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones, follow this, follow verse 5, but certain ones, these are believers that are in Jerusalem, certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed. So they're believers from the sect of the Pharisees. They were saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. These are believers at Jerusalem speaking to Paul and Barnabas about the Gentiles. And their summation is, it's true, they do have to be circumcised, but then they up the ante and say, and they have to follow the law of Moses. Now, think with me logically. If the ones in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers, are saying that the Gentiles have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, what are they doing in their religion? They're following the law. They're already circumcised, and they're keeping the law as part of their religion, even though they believe in the Messiah that has come. Why? Because they've been doing it for 1,400 years. That's why. Because that is their tradition. That is their background. That is their history. And now the Messiah has come, and they've embraced the Messiah, but they see him as the culmination of those 1,400 years. They didn't automatically say, oh, Jesus is here, and so now it's all salvation by grace through faith. Let's not go to the temple anymore. Let's not keep the feast days anymore. Let's give up all our Jewish religion, and let's just join the Gentiles. That's not what happened. <laughs> what happened was they saw Jesus as the culmination of everything they had believed and followed for 1,400 years, and so because they saw him as the continuation of it, they continued in it. They continued to say, yes, Jesus, and the law. Now, as I've been saying for weeks, that is a unique moment in human history. The first generation of Jewish believers who also recognize the Messiah. That people group 
that generation of Jews is unique in human history. There's never going to be a first century Jewish Jerusalem church again because it happened in the first century. And it is the beginning of the transition from believing in Christ and the law to fully believing in Christ. But it didn't happen automatically. It didn't happen overnight. And don't forget that the book of James is written in that melu, in that culture, in that people group. So, of course, James would say things that include you're justified by works. That's what they believe. James wasn't the only one. They believed it in the Jerusalem church at large because it was the continuation of the Jewish religion. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. Have I lost anybody yet? No. Okay, keep reading. Verse 5, certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Notice that. Peter understands the distinction. He cleansed their hearts not by works, not by justifying them through the works, but he cleansed their heart through faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples? He's talking about the Gentile disciples. Why would you place on their neck a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they are. And all the multitudes kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered. This is going to be informative. Listen to what James says. He said, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So what he's arguing is, we know that the prophets have already said that God is going to restore the tabernacle of David. That's the house of Israel. He's going to restore Israel to what they once were. Even though it's fallen right now, it's going to be rebuilt on its ruins, and I will restore it. For what reason? In order that the rest of mankind, the Gentiles in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. 
That's what the Lord says, verse 18, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, says James, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them right away. He's got to put a rule on them. He can't help himself. He says, we don't trouble them anymore, except that we give them some rules to trouble them. Because that's the way James thinks. He can't help himself. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from things strangled in blood. Okay, so exactly which part of the law is James pulling these things from? The moral, the civil, the ceremonial? What? Well, it would be the ceremonial if it's don't go to idols. Fornication would be moral. Things in blood, perhaps civil, perhaps. No, he doesn't divide up the law. He's imposing law on them. After saying we shouldn't trouble them, he then imposes law on them, not that differently than the uh, members of the Pharisees did earlier. Verse 21, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who will preach him since he's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter to them. So essentially, they're going to send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, but they're going to send some of their own people with them who can testify, yes, we actually heard this. This letter is a true representation of what James and the Jerusalem elders have come to. This is what they have said to you by letter. This is what they wrote. The apostles and the brethren who are the elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. What are the essentials? He doesn't say, here's the essentials, faith in Christ. Here are the essentials, believe on Jesus and the grace of God. He doesn't lay out any of the doctrinal positions that Paul will later develop to explain how it is that the grace of God is sufficient to save Gentiles utterly and completely. The only requirement is faith in the finished work of Christ. That's not what James calls the essentials. James says only these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. What did he do? He laid rules on them. Because that's how James thinks. If you keep yourselves free from these, you will do well. Farewell. <laughs> so what did he just do? James sent a letter to the Gentiles saying, here are the rules. Can you see now why James, in writing his epistle to a Jewish audience, would have an emphasis on works? 
He always has an emphasis on works. And he tells the Gentiles, if you do these things I'm telling you to do, then you're doing well. Well, of course, then, he would write to Jews who believe in both the law and in Christ and the culmination of Christ at the end of 1,400 years of God revealing himself to Israel as a nation. All of that, of course, James could say to them, your works justify you. And they'd say, yes, of course, they do. Keep reading. So when they went away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together there, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. I only wanted to get to verse 32 so that any of you who start complaining about the length of the messages at GCA can just back up off me, man. I'm a preacher. <laughs> It's biblical. That's all I'm getting at. Turn to Acts 21. Because that wasn't the end of it. You would think after all that, that there would have been an agreement between Paul and James, that they would both understand their relative audiences, and that there'd be no more controversy between the two of them. But that wasn't the case. Paul had to go back to Jerusalem again. Start at verse 15. Of Acts 21. Acts 21 verse 15. And after these days we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. By the way, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Is Luke a Jew or a Gentile? It's a Gentile. He's traveling with Paul. That's why he can say we went to Jerusalem because he's Paul's traveling companion. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking with us Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to whom? To James. And all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brethren, notice this. This is what James is saying to Paul now. You see, brethren, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. You see that? That seems to be okay with James. They believe in Christ. They believe the Messiah has come. And they are zealous for the law. So what about it now? Verse 21. They have been told about you. That you are teaching the Jews. Who are among the Gentiles. To forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Is that true? No. Not true. That's what they're hearing. That's what they're believing. Because they are familiar now with the Pauline theology. As the letters start going out, as the sermons are being repeated, they're familiar with the fact that Paul is saying, you don't need Moses. But he's saying that to Gentiles. 
There's nowhere recorded where Paul ever says to the Jews, forsake Moses. Why? Because he sees the Jew-Gentile distinction. They've been told about you that you are teaching the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. If that were true that Paul was saying don't circumcise your children, then why did he circumcise Timothy? Right? What then? What then is to be done? Verse 22, they will certainly hear that you have come here. You're in Jerusalem. They're going to want to know what the deal is. Therefore, do this that we tell you to do. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. How does Paul purify himself? According to the customs of the law. He has to go be ceremonially clean. And he has to take a vow with these other four men who have a vow, which, by the way, those vows are under the law. And pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads, and then everybody will know that there is nothing to these things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. What is James' expectation of Paul? That Paul himself, being a Jew, is walking orderly, keeping the law. And if you will just do what we tell you to do, everybody will know that you haven't forsaken Moses and that you're walking orderly and keeping the law. And the next verse says, And Paul withstood them and said, No way. I'm not under bondage. I'm not under the law. I won't do what you're saying. I'm going back to the Gentiles. Back up off me, man. I'm an apostle. I don't need your opinions. You'd... That's not what it says, is it? That's what we'd expect it to say, at least with our concept of who Paul is and what Paul believes and how he stood for salvation by grace through faith and without the works of the law. Except that Paul agrees. Verse 25, But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. In other words, we only expect them to keep those rules. But we expect you to keep the law. Then Paul took the man, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice, that's killing an animal, was offered for each one of them. What was Paul doing? Keeping the law. Keeping the law. Among whom? among the Jews at Jerusalem. Do you see what Paul was doing? Paul, who is a Jew, could keep the law because, after all, he's part of the covenant people. And when he's among the Jews, he's like the Jews. When he's among the Gentiles, he's like the Gentiles. He says, I can be all things to all men. But this is, and I'm going to keep emphasizing it, after the resurrection. This is after the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is after the establishment of the church. And yet Paul is fine with the fact that the believers in Jerusalem also follow the law. He doesn't contend with them. He doesn't argue with them. In fact, he subjects himself to them. And he keeps the vow that they say. 
and he does sacrifice an animal, and he does ceremonially purify himself. Now, we could argue that the reason he did that was to keep peace in the church so that they would listen to what he's going to say, but the simple reality is all we're told is that he did do it because he understands the distinction between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. And that's what I'm driving at over and over. Do you see it yet? Yes. Because yes. I'm not done. I got more examples. They're going to keep coming. And it's after 12, and my time's running out. So we got to talk faster, as if that's humanly possible. <laughs> Turn to Galatians. We now know that there are believers in Jerusalem who are also zealous for the law. We also know that Paul, writing to the Gentiles, would say, you're saved without the works of the law. And yet he would go to Jerusalem and keep the works of the law in order to keep peace with those who are under the law because they're Jews, because they're his brethren. Go to Galatians 2. You would think, after all that, after Peter standing up, at the council at Jerusalem and declaring how God had used him to take the gospel to the Gentiles and how he would witness that the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles the same way it fell on them, you would think that that would be good enough for Peter to no longer make any distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. You would think that he would just erase all those distinctions from that point forward. Does he? No. no. Why? Because he's a Jew, because he's from Jerusalem, and importantly, he has to report to James. And so, he acts a certain way. Let's start at chapter 2, verse 7. But on the contrary, Paul writes, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, see that? Here he is writing to Gentiles, and what does he tell the Gentiles? There's a distinction between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. He lays that distinction right out there. Why isn't it upsetting to them? They already know it. They know the Gentile-Jewish distinction. It's just that we've forgotten it. 2,000 years has gone by. We've forgotten about the first generation of the church at Jerusalem and we forgot about the conflict that they had with God bringing Gentiles into the church. We have forgotten all that, and so I think we just read past it when it's right here in black and white in front of us. But we're continually told that this distinction and the debate between them continued, that it existed, and the Word of God doesn't shy away from telling us that. So anyway, on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted, Paul had been entrusted, with the gospel to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we would go to the Gentiles and they would go to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Notice, by the way, that Paul does not mention they only asked us not to eat things strangled in blood and to avoid fornication and to avoid idols. Don't mention it. Why? 
because it's straight from the law. And Paul won't put the law on Gentiles. But he does think it's a good idea to take care of the poor at Jerusalem. He agrees with that. Verse 11, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wait, what? <laughs> Paul and Peter, both preachers of grace, one preaching to Gentiles, one preaching to Jews, and Peter was so wrong when he was at Antioch, even though he had the Holy Spirit, even though he is an apostle of Jesus, even though he's one of Jesus' inside circle of three, even though he got to see and hear things that the other apostles didn't get to see or hear, even then he could be wrong. And here's how he was wrong. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, okay, so some men from James came to Antioch. And prior to them coming, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. What was the thing they were upset with him for at the beginning back in Jerusalem? They were upset with him because he ate with the Gentiles. He knows that upset them. And so prior to the men coming from James, from Jerusalem to Antioch, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when those men came, Peter began to withdraw, hold himself aloof. Why? Fearing the party of the circumcision. Mm. Who's that? The Jews. The Jews. Peter, John, and James. The Jerusalem church. Peter feared the Jerusalem church. For what reason? He was afraid that if they found out he was eating with Gentiles again, that they'd carry that news back to James and he'd be called on account again. He didn't want to go through that again. So when he sees guys come from James from Jerusalem... He acts like he wasn't eating with the Gentiles. And Paul calls him out for his hypocrisy. Mm. Where did that hypocrisy come from? The Jew-Gentile distinction in the early church. Do you see it? Yes. Am I alone up here? No. Okay. The rest of the Jews joined him in their hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of them all, which means he called him out publicly. He said, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? How is it? This is the question. These men have come from James. These are the people who are zealous for the law. These are the ones who believe that the Gentiles have to at very least be circumcised, if not keep the whole law. And now Paul's argument is, if Peter, who's a Jew, would eat and live like the Gentiles, then why are you expecting Gentiles to act like the Jews? Because the Jews are acting like the Gentiles. Verse 15. We... He's talking about actual Jews. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. How are the Gentiles figured there? They're the sinners. Why are they the sinners? Because they're not Jews. They're not Israelites. We're real Jews. We're Jews by nature. We're not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man 
is not justified by the works of the law. What did we see right at the end of last week? James said, you're justified by your works. Here's Paul saying, you are not justified by your works, by the works of the law, but you are justified through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul lays out his theology there. It is completely contrary to the Jamesian theology. Why does he bring it out here? Because they're all there. They're all in Antioch. They're all gathered. Their hypocrisy has just been demonstrated. And so now Paul is calling out the James theology and saying, we're Jews. We're Jews by nature. And yet we realize that justification can't be by the law. It has to be by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is still contending with James. All I'm driving at here is that there was an early tension, a friction between what James and the Jerusalem Jewish believers believed and what Paul says to the Gentiles, the difference exists. And the Bible is honest enough with us to tell us that the difference exists. And so when we read in James things that we Gentiles would say, no, that's not Pauline. The reason it exists is because the Bible has been honest with us and told us that friction exists. Mm -hmm. Does this make sense? Yes. I'm not quite done. Turn to Galatians 5. Because let me show you kind of an interesting moment here. And then we'll close. Because James has already talked about the law of liberty, and he has talked about the royal law. And he has identified the royal law for us. He has said the royal law is, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, that's the royal law. Well, Paul agrees with that. Paul has no contention with that. Chapter 5, starting at verse 13, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brethren, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. In other words, if you're used to biting and devouring each other, backstabbing, talking bad at each other, gossiping about each other, you're just going to eat each other up. And yet the royal law says, love one another as you love yourself. But I say, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. So what's Paul driving at? Everything that James and the leaders of Jerusalem are telling you, that you've got to be circumcised and keep some part of the law, every time that they try to impose the law on you, I'm here telling you over and over, you can't be justified by your works. Last week we ended at, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works 
is dead. Verse 24 of James 2 says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you see the difference? Do you know why the difference exists now? Do you have a better comprehension of what was going on in the early church? The conflict existed. The friction existed. And it's okay to say that. In my introduction to the book of James, I said, and it's on tape so you can check me, I said, I'm not going to try to harmonize James and Paul. That's the common way that people try to approach James within the 21st century Christian church. They attempt to harmonize the two and try to claim that James and Paul are not saying different things. I'm telling you, they're saying different things. And then Luann asked last week, but isn't it all the word of God? And the answer is yes. It's all the word of God to two different people groups, to a particular time and place, to a particular people, and a particular moment in time when the Jews were making the transition from all those years of law to now embracing the Messiah That was a culmination for them. That was an end point for them. For the Gentiles, Jesus is a starting point. Jesus, Calvary, that's where you start. To the Jews, that's where you finish. That's different. Those differences exist. If you get the differences, you don't have a problem with the book of James. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Yes, sir. Well, you know, the modern legalists No, the modern legalists have never given up. No. And they love to go to the book of James without making the distinctions that I've been trying to make this morning so that they can impose James on you. But when James was imposed on Gentiles, Paul withstood it. He doesn't want Jamesian theology to be imposed on the Gentiles, but importantly, really importantly, he doesn't have a problem with it being imposed on the Jews. Because he sees it as exactly what Stephen says in that sermon in the book of Acts, that this is the culmination of everything that the Israelites have been going through in dealing with God so that the Messiah would come. He knows that. He sees that. He has no problem with it. But among the Gentiles... They don't have the covenants. They don't have the promises. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the Old Testament. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have the Holy of Holies. They don't have a high priest. They don't have any of that stuff. So you can't start there with them. You have to start with who is Jesus? And did he die? And did he resurrect? And that's why Paul's entire theology centers around if Jesus got up, we're saved. And that's very different than the Jewish Jamesian theology. And it's okay to say that. And I wish more people would say that. But again, biblical ignorance runs rampant in the country. Okay. Is this the reason that there will be sacrifices in the temple museum? I love you, Gladys. I love you. I I adore you. Yes! That's the answer. Yes. We're going to get to. You get to the end of the book of Ezekiel and there's a rebuilt temple with animal sacrifices. Why? Because God's law that was never perfectly performed, but which is, according to Paul, a holy and righteous covenant is going to be kept properly and rightly 
at some point in the right temple, and the Jewish religion is going to come to its culmination. Yes! And there are people in the church right now who say, and I listened to it last night, did I not? Last night I was listening to guys talking about New Covenant theology, denying, outright denying the book of Ezekiel simply because they can't deal with that temple that's coming because in that temple there's going to be sacrifices again. And so what do they do? Rather than change their theology to fit what the Bible actually says, they changed the Bible to fit what their theology would prefer it say, and they ended up trashing the book of Ezekiel because they couldn't deal with the animal sacrifices. But Paul... In Jerusalem, after the resurrection, after the spirit had come, sacrificed animals in the temple and didn't have a problem with it. Why? Because it was being done among the Israelites, among the Jews. So can God say that there's going to be another temple for the Jews and they're going to gather at Jerusalem and they're going to finally sacrifice rightly to him? Sure he can. Of course he can. Anyway, Alex, you had your hand up. Nobody can hear you from back there. Nobody can hear me. A deaf person can hear me. <laughs> Peter, you know, a fisherman, and James, a, you know, nominal Jews, here they are promoting the strong legalistic message. And Paul, the Jew of Jews, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees, is preaching to the Gentiles the free grace of Christ. That, that's amazing. But that gave him all the more credibility. Right, right, which is why he would say, we're Jews by nature. We're the real Jews, and yet among the Gentiles, this has to be the message. And you're right, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He bragged that before the law, he was blameless. And yet when he got to the Gentiles, he didn't impose any law on them. Instead, he said, no law for you. You can't be justified by the works of the law. And he would know. Amazing. Yes, sir. I know you had to jump to Galatians, but it seems chronologically and, and more, more information um, in Acts 21, 22, where it continues, where they're really going after Paul to kill him. Yeah. I mean, they're seizing him and they want to do away with him. Yeah. And they trump up the charge that he brought a Gentile into the temple. Right. That seems to help a little bit. Really. Yeah. How great that tension was. Huge tension. They're killing folks over it. Right. Yeah. Yes, sir. When you see that a significant part of the Jerusalem Christian Church is Pharisees, you understand why James is speaking the way he does, and you understand why they want to kill Paul because didn't they go after Jesus? It, it just all fits. It does all fit. That's that's good that you said that because who'd have guessed that the whole Bible makes sense? <laughs> Anything else? I got to let you go. I know I've kept you a long time. Yeah, right, right, right. They were separated from each other the, the vast majority of the time. True. That's right. Alex, you done? You got your questions all answered? You good? Well, I, I was just going to say, I think what might be a little troubling is that it's one thing for the Bible historically to note the tension. And I think maybe in your case, and somewhat to me, it's a little troubling that the book of James is written as canonical scripture the Bible's not just a reflection of the tension, but it's preaching it, it's presenting it as canonical scripture on equal footing with Paul's writings. That's where I think people get a little wound up. Mm -hmm. you know. 
I, I would agree with that. But don't you think that the epistle of James ought to be included in the New Testament scripture if it's part of the history of the church? Apparently. Apparently, the early church fathers felt it belonged in there. Because it's an honest book. That's what I keep trying to stress. It's an honest demonstration of the tension that was happening in the early church. So I like the fact that, that it's included in the Bible. The same way that I began forever ago by saying there's uncomfortable stuff in the Bible. But it includes it. If the Bible were fake, if it were written by guys trying to start a, a religion, they'd harmonize it all. And they take out the uncomfortable stuff. But being the word of God, it includes all the failures of mankind and all the people that God chose to save who still were putting their foot in their mouth and being hypocrites and having troubles and just like you and me. Christians need to know history. God. Christians need to know history. There, that's kind of it. Christians need to know history. You know, I could have stood up here about an hour and a half ago and said, Christians need to know history. Bye-bye. And we could have all gone home. But this yeah. history. All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Eric, say goodbye to yourself. Bye. Okay, there it is. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.